Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. And the only way you're going to get you know, the economy running the way it should be is to have low interest rates or negative interest rates. But the problem with that logic is it combines everyone into this sort of single, undifferentiated mass, and it doesn't distinguish between the fact that there are a lot of people who have very legitimate reasons to want to put some money away and not lose money, and then other people who maybe, in fact, they should be prodded or pushed to spend their money on productive enterprises or or to consume goods and services. And, and I think that's the problem with having, you know, the policy framework we have is one interest rate. Here with economics and markets writer Matthew Klein on the new schools of thinking on full employment, all the rust on post-COVID supply chains around the planet, China, the forgotten class of savers, and striking out on his own in the great wide open of unbundled subscriber-supported analysis. Stick around. This episode is made possible by the support of Salomon & Ludwin, a boutique wealth management firm dedicated to helping families make smart financial decisions. You worked hard and sacrificed to create and build wealth. They treat advice given to you with the respect your journey deserves. For over 30 years, Salomon & Ludwin has earned a reputation of trust and confidence, recognized by Barron's as a Hall of Fame advisor. More at SalomonLudwin.com. Full Disclosure Podcast to NPR One, Spotify, and Apple at linkfulldradio.com. Please subscribe, rate us, and recommend the show to others, and follow on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Full D Radio. Joining me from the Bay Area is Matthew Klein, founder of The Overshoot and co-author of Trade Wars Are Class Wars. After tours with The Economist, Bloomberg Opinion, the FT, and Barron's, Matthew recently struck out on his own with The Overshoot, a subscription service which bills itself as your guide to the global economy, financial markets, and public policy. How are you, sir? Doing great, Robin. Thank you very much for having me. I do want to get into the whole, you know, the great wide open, the terrifying and exhilarating great wide open of striking out on your own. But first, let's talk about the here and now and economics and the messy situation, uh, what with D.C. and the Federal Reserve and uh, Senator Warren coming out against Fed Chair Jerome Powell. Uh, Start me with a jump ball. When I'm looking at the overshoot, which you said your work is read across the world by central bankers, chief economists, academics, policymakers, and investors, I'm curious at at some of these headlines here, you said the Federal Reserve wonders what maximum employment means. It sounds almost Orwellian maximum employment. Explain that for our listeners. That's a great question. So the Fed is governed by laws that Congress passed back in the late 1970s, and they have a mandate to guarantee what's called maximum employment, stable prices, and then moderate long-term interest rates. And the assumption being that that last one, you know, sort of takes care of itself if you take care of inflation and employment. But there's a serious question of what is maximum employment? You can think of that as, as you said, it's kind of weird, like too many people having jobs. Why would, what, what does that even mean? You know, do you want to actually force people out of work that that's going to be good for the economy? But that's, that's sort of implicit. Um, or even explicit in a lot of the models that have been sort of standard for central banks for many years. More recently, the Federal Reserve in particular been leading a shift away from that that sort of older style of thinking. And in fact, they, um, you know, Jerome Powell himself said that the the idea that higher employment or lower unemployment automatically leads to too much inflation. He said it's one of the one of the old formulas, and and they've been 
having a real rethink. And, and instead, they've been sort of looking at maximum employment as something to aspire to as a goal, you know, having as many people employed as possible, rather than, you know, oh, if too many people are employed, we're gonna have to try to slow down the economy. But it's a real question of what that means. So, you know, starting just over a year ago, the Fed announced, and they've been announcing every meeting since then, they're not going to raise their level, level of short-term interest rates until they think that the job market has returned to maximum employment, whatever that means. The problem is they never defined what that is, how they would define it, what they're looking at. And so that's really created a lot of challenges and questions for people who are, are trading interest rate markets, people who are looking at the economy, trying to figure out what the Fed is going to do, because that's a threshold that we don't really know what to look at. We could say, we know what the job market was doing, you know, on the eve of the pandemic. Things were going pretty well back then. The unemployment rate was three and a half percent. But three and a half percent, percent which right. is a multi-decade, a multi-decade That's low. Right. But was that the maximum? I mean, they didn't think it was the maximum at the time. The economy was humming along fine, but it wasn't as you know, wasn't obviously that they were. Really- so I, I don't, I don't understand. I mean, is somebody romancing some sort of that seventies show or early eighties show where if you pierce three percent, if you get to maybe the two percent level, suddenly wages are going to shoot up and you're going to have runaway inflation and the Federal Reserve has to come in and slam the brakes. I I don't, at least in my adult life, remember any sort of wage price spiral inflation where joblessness was so low that people could kind of walk in to the boss's office and kick up the boots and demand a a fat raise. That's right. That's the big question. I mean, the thing is, I mean, part of the thing that the reason that's it's, it's really challenging to wrap your head around is if joblessness is low, it's true that it means workers have more leverage to demand raises, but it also means there are more people actually working and producing things. So, you know, if you have a world where nobody's working and employed and producing things, that means there's less, you know, goods and services to go around. So you'd expect there to be not as much available for people who want to buy them. That could be, you could think of that being inflationary. I mean, a world in which everyone is actually working and producing isn't obviously inflationary. You know, you can see it from one perspective, the other perspective, it's not because you're producing more. And and to your point, I mean, it's absolutely right. We, you know, it hasn't really been we have one very clear example of where this seems to have happened, which is the 1970s. Wow. But we don't really see anything like that before the 1970s. And we don't really see anything like that after the 1970s. And there are a lot of reasons to think that you know, the linkages between domestic unemployment rates or the domestic job market as a whole and the price level, it's very tenuous. I mean, the things that Americans do for a living in terms of their work versus mm-hmm. what Americans buy and, and things that go in the consumer price index or or the personal consumption expenditures price index, which is another inflation gauge. I mean, these things don't really line up very well. I mean, a lot of Americans working in industries, they're either serving under other businesses, um, which don't show up in consumer prices, or they're they're working for export markets. I mean, if you're if you're working at a you know an aerospace company, I mean consumers don't buy planes. They don't buy they don't directly buy semiconductors. Um, a lot of what you see in in inflation is things like housing. They buy they buy new 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 toilets, right? I could I couldn't resist, Matthew. I had to. <laughs> right. And a lot of that <laughs> stuff is is made, you know, somewhere else in the world. And and you know, that's right. fine. Um and we you know the, the trade is a perfectly you know reasonable way for you know people in one place to you know, get things that they don't make themselves and you know vice versa. So there are a lot of you know complex linkages. And as I said housing is a huge category of inflation, but the actual cost of housing, I mean, it's not, it's not exactly what you call a labor-intensive business. I mean, the houses already exist uh, for the most part. Uh, Are we splitting hairs, though, when we're talking about that headline consumer price index? You say it was 0.27% higher in August than in July on a seasonally adjusted basis. That's the smallest monthly increase since January 2021 and not far off from the January 95 to February 2020 monthly average of 0.18%. 
But if I were to poll men on the street, and of course, this is not as empirical as it should be, they would tell you absolutely there's inflation in my life right now. There are products that I can't find. Uh, On the butcher block, I've been feeling inflation. We just had a restaurateur on the episode and said she can't get oxtail because of COVID shutdowns and, you know, Jamaica export-import issues, shipping containers. But then you strip out what they call the volatile food and energy prices. Is that real-world inflation? Is that hair-splitting? That's a good question. So first of all, that 0.27% number includes food food and energy. So I, I mean, I agree. It's like what you choose to include or exclude. You have to really be sort of context-dependent on when it makes sense to cut things out. I, I think the challenge is that the government looks at an average that's based on what everyone in the country is buying. But obviously everyone, depending on where you live, the stage of your life, your personal preferences and tastes, you, the, the, the mix of things you buy is going to be very different. And so the experience you have inflation is going to be very different depending on all of those factors. I mean, I remember a few years ago, you know, I was living in New York and I had like a you know, 10% rent increase one year and thinking, well, you know, the official number is, you know, <laughs> like 3%. Obviously, my experience of inflation is, is quite a bit different from that. But, you know, that's one particular person in one particular place at a specific time and stage of life. I mean, it's very challenging. You know, all, the other thing, too, is a lot of people the prices that they see that are most visible are things that they buy most frequently. So that's like gasoline and groceries. Well, what recently happened with this kind of this tug of war with service sector wages, and we've heard about the, you know, Chipotle and others slowly, reluctantly coming up to $15 and saying by the end of the year, we'll be at $15. I mean, it's not like people, workers with pitchfork showed up and demanded $15. It's enough people stayed home after the lockdowns that you had to bring the prices up to bring some sort of equilibrium back to staffing these restaurants. That's right. It's a re- what's going on with the restaurants is a really interesting story because you've seen really large wage increases there. And you, and you saw this even before the pandemic, pretty substantial wage increases for workers that weren't showing up in prices. So prices at restaurants have recently been rising relatively quickly. I mean, something on the order of sort of an 8% yearly rate since you know the end of last year. But wages have been growing way faster, and wages for workers in particular relative to the wages of restaurant managers, which is also sort of an interesting mix there. So, I mean, labor is obviously a major cost if you're running a chain restaurant or even you know, just a mom-and-pop restaurant, but it's not your only cost. And so I guess what's been happening apparently is that between the costs of you know, your ingredients or your equipment or you know, the rent on the property or franchise fees or whatever, somehow – it's been the case that overall restaurant managers have been in a situation where they're able to pay their workers a lot more and not have to pass on one for one those percentage wage increases to consumers, which I think is you know pretty a great win-win because you know those workers weren't exactly doing very well before. So if it's a situation where the workers are better off and consumers aren't, you know, obviously that much worse off, I mean that I think that that's that's really compelling. Um, but that's a really kind of unusual situation. Well, it makes you it makes you wonder where all the excess profits were going for the longest time if they were being absorbed in, you know, margins at the restaurant or in management pay or in shareholder returns. If you're looking at a public company like Chipotle, I've heard I've heard you know Kara Swisher and Scott Galloway talk about it. That what what happened that you would hear from all these restaurant owners and managers that if we do see something of a prevailing wage on the order of twelve to fifteen dollars, you're going to see a, a an insufferable increase in menu prices, and that hasn't happened yet. Yeah, I mean, I I think it's I think this is a kind of a little bit of a puzzle. I mean, I, you know, there's some people economists who've done some really good research on minimum wages, and I think this relates to that because some of us due to legislative action, not all of it, but some of it is. 
And one of the points they make is that, you know, a lot of employers at the low end of pay have costs that we don't see in terms of things like turnover and, and retention and things like that. And if you're paying more and you're saving money on those kinds of costs, then that's sort of a win-win for everyone. I mean, you might say, they might say naively, oh yeah, we're not paying as much per hour. And so we're better off than if we raise our wages. But if they keep on having people leave and keep having to post new job advertisements and keep having to train new people to come in and get them revved up to the normal standard of operation that, that their existing employees had. I mean, that's, that is a cost. So there actually is a, is a possibility that everyone is more or less better off from this you know, new equilibrium. The other point, which I mean, you alluded to, and I, I was mentioning this too, is really interesting. The government tracks the wages of both line workers and managers across industry sectors. And you can kind of compare the trends there over time. And in restaurants or across the broader leisure and hospitality sector, it's really interesting that for line workers, excuse me, that's where you've been seeing pretty consistently large wage increases for several years. It's been particularly pronounced in the past year or so, year and a half. But even before that, you know, pretty substantial, sort of three, four percent. For the managers, you basically have no gains for years. I don't know exactly what's driving that divergence, but I think it might be motivating some of the rhetoric we've been hearing. It's maybe you can imagine that being a source of resentment for some people where, you know, they've been managing the restaurant and they haven't been getting a raise, but suddenly all the, you know, the, the cooks and the waiters and dishwashers are getting raised and they might be annoyed about that, but it might not, you know, but those forces might help offset the end cost for consumers. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. You're listening to Matthew Klein of The Overshoot. It's his new subscription service. He's striking out on his own after tours of duty at Barron's. was Bloomberg Opinion, Bloomberg View. He was uh, Alphaville columnist at the Financial Times. I do see on Twitter, Matthew, that your, your editors seem to miss you. Or was it Robin Wigglesworth? Or someone said, uh, subscribe to this young man's service. I miss him. Yeah, and I mean, I've I've been very fortunate to work at some really great places with some great people, and I'm I'm happy that you know they're still uh, you know we keep in touch and and, and all that. But it, it's uh, you know it's good it's good to be on my own. That that I haven't been said. So, Matthew, what's going on with autos? We hear so much consternation, this bizarre arbitrage in used cars, and everybody's saying, "Dude, I have a ten year old Toyota Camry, and I could sell it for what I bought it for. Effectively, it cost me nothing to drive outside of maintenance for a decade." Problem is, there's such a shortage of used cars and new cars, I can't turn around and plow it into anything else. We keep being told about this chip shortage. I don't know if it's Taiwan Semiconductor, but yes, the, the system is super fragile. Then the entire industry, if you see the Ford headline today, is backing up the truck, if you will, on battery technology and electrification. It seems like both an exciting and terrifying time. Yeah, so this is something I started writing about last summer before you know the chip shortage you know, per se. But I mean, what's interesting is that the pandemic hits, all the auto assembly plants globally, more or less shut down, you know, auto, you know, motor vehicle assemblies in the US, it, it basically just drops to zero in April, it recovers, you know, in May and June, but it never gets back to where it was. And what's remarkable is that this is despite the fact that while consumer demand dropped very rapidly in March and April, consumer spending on cars and trucks not only fully recovered, but in fact exceeded previous levels very quickly and then continued to stay well above previous levels for you know a year. And basically, I mean, there are a couple of good reasons for that. One is that you know, if you can't spend money at, at restaurants or hotels or whatever, and you have some spare cash, maybe you think now is a good time to buy a car. You know, you maybe used to take public transit, but you don't want to, so you want to have a car. You just got a nice stimulus check. You know, you maybe you could never afford a car, but you always wish you had one. You buy a car. All these factors are converging to create a 
sustained massive demand for, for motor vehicles, particularly in the United States. Not only in the United States, but particularly in the United States. But producers never responded to that. They always kept production at or below pre-pandemic levels. And so that ended up creating a persistent imbalance. That imbalance had been resolved through um, dealers basically selling all the cars and trucks they had in their lots and showed it very clearly in the data. And that kind of worked, you know, everything was kind of in a weird balance for a bit. But the problem is, you know, a lot of the the car makers decided by the time you get to the end of 2020 that they actually wanted to, you know, bring back production. They hadn't rehired people. They hadn't, you know, necessarily bought all the parts, but they were thinking about this. But they really, you know, unfortunately, they canceled all of their orders or a lot wow. of their orders for for uh, for microchips for for you know for the parts that they needed. That you know, semiconductors are now much more important for cars. You think about the technology in a car now versus twenty years ago; it's just light years different. Oh yeah, and, sure. You know, they canceled those orders because they think they didn't need them. The manufacturers think to themselves, okay, well, these are kind of the low value chips anyway, compared to the kinds of chips they make that go in phones, computers, and stuff like that. The stuff that goes in cars is very low margin. It's not valuable. So if, they, if that gets canceled, that's just not going to be, you know, they're not going to make space for it. And, you know, then the car makers decide they actually did want the chips. But at that point, the chip makers weren't able to ramp up production sufficiently, you know, to meet the demand. I mean, obviously, it's not that they haven't produced at all, because you're still seeing cars get made and people are still buying cars. But there's a bit of an imbalance. And that's part of what's been driving um, some of the, the recent stuff. On the used cars, there's, there's another element I, sh- I should add. And this relates to sort of the, the the fact that businesses misunderstood the the magnitude of the snapback we had from the pandemic, which is that rental car companies, which are the big business buyers of cars, right? Consumers buy cars, but also rental car companies buy cars. They buy the fleets buy, you know, you know, hundreds of thousands of cars they own. And they basically stopped buying new cars in the spring. And they figured, not unreasonably, that well, business travel is cratered and people going on vacation is cratered, and we don't have cash to pay our debts because a lot of these companies are pretty indebted. I mean, Hertz went back. Yeah, they're highly levered, bankrupt them and private equity backed companies. Exactly. And so they figure, well, we have these assets with our cars, so we should get rid of them. And so that also oh, helped. Gosh. Talk that about helped selling consumers. selling your seed corn across the board. Right. And it's a thing that it's a strategy that made sense given what they thought was going to happen, which is if you think about the past few economic downturns we've had in this country, especially 2008, you know, that was a good bet, right? Something bad happens, and then you have a very slow and partial recovery. And so the last thing you want to do is position yourself for a quick return to normalcy, because if you do that, you're going to get burned. And so it makes sense that if you thought that was what's going to happen, that that's what you would do. Unfortunately, you know, that would, I mean, fortunately, it's not what happened. We actually had a much better, healthier recovery. But unfortunately, they didn't, you know, anticipate that. And that's sort of where we are. But they, you know, the rental car fleets, they were able to help, you know, in addition to the dealers selling the inventory in their lots, the rental car companies getting rid of liquidating their fleets effectively also provided a huge supply of used vehicles to meet consumer demand. But that process stopped. And in fact, by the time you get to this summer, um, you know, everyone wants to rent a car now. And you see these crazy right. st- stories about how, like, you know, people would rent U-Hauls on, on Hawaii because it was cheaper to get rent a U-Haul than an actual car. Uh, I think that that sort of that process may have peaked, but I mean, that was sort of a real adjustment. And these are the kinds of things, I think it'll all work itself out eventually. I mean, the, the semiconductor manufacturers will be able to meet the demand for cars, the car makers, every other piece of the motor vehicle supply chain is basically fine. In fact, one of the things that's interesting, you look at the data is that the inventories of unsold parts have actually been going up and up because you have 
everything you need except for you know the chip or a couple of chips or whatever but everything else is ready so they're just kind of sitting on it waiting so i think once that backlog is cleared um you know the used car prices seem to have i mean maybe, maybe it'll change but it seems like they're starting to roll roll over again as as you know we had this crazy spike in demand for used cars because that was all that was available and you know the, the car the rental car fleets seem to have rebuilt enough uh so i think that's all going to work itself out over time but it certainly led to some really weird data over the past you know 18 months and we'll probably it might continue to do for a few more months as well and it's just you know i think it reflects a lot of you know a, a lot of what people thought was going to happen based on their experience of 2008 that didn't happen because this was a very different downturn matthew you were a history major back in the day and you you graduated i guess into the financial crisis in 2009 to what extent did you study the pandemic of 2018 or to what extent did historians in wall street study that period just before the Roaring Twenties. I know it's only so instructive in that it was a completely different world back then. The modern Federal Reserve was pretty brand new, was still more of an agrarian economy. We have not seen, you know, nowhere near the globalization and supply chains that we have today. But I'm blown away whether I interview a doctor or I interview an economist or a market strategist at how little attention was paid to the lesson of, of what they called the Great Spanish Flu. Yeah, so I mean, I'll be honest with you. I did not study that at all in school, um, and I knew that it happened. Um, I knew sort of the quick, crazy fact was that more people died from the Spanish flu of 1918 than died in World War One. But beyond that, I really didn't have a lot of sense of it. And you know, more recently, you know, looking back, I mean, there's a great book that came out a year ago. Um, it's a biography of, of Keynes called The Price of Peace. And I was reading that. It's funny, you know, it's, obviously this book came out right as the pandemic was starting so it wasn't something they could have written about but it's kind of you know the spanish flu was mentioned i mean the people at the treaty negotiating the treaty of versailles were getting sick from the spanish flu well woodrow um, wilson himself was potentially sick from spanish flu right i heard in an npr history podcast that his wife was practically running the country by then and and that affected the course of history and that he he let the french be even tougher <laughs> on on the germans and the weimar republic and that affected the course of history yeah, it's kind of amazing. But yeah, I mean, it's fascinating because I I mean, thinking about how that played out versus the current situation, it's very challenging because, of course, that was in the middle or right after a war, sort of the tail end of a war that already disrupted the economy so much. So thinking about how you disentangle the effect of the flu is probably pretty hard versus now when, you know, we were basically the world as a whole was more or less at peace and this kind of a shock from the blue and then as you said on top of that you have a very globalized world i mean deglobalization already happened by 1918 because the war had just broken up a lot of the links that had previously existed across countries so it's it's challenging to see i, I think it's really interesting and I, I confess i didn't really study it i don't know who did but and it brought this to mind when you were introducing the overshoot uh, earlier this year, you said, we need to overshoot. Let's see what happens. Uh, to quote you, in 1940, only a quarter of U.S. adults had even finished high school. By 2020, more than 90% of American adults had finished high school and almost 40% had a four-year college degree. Only 30% of American women were employed in the late 1940s versus almost 60% by the late 1990s. Since then, the female employment rate has essentially flatlined. The U.S. population structure has also changed significantly. The prime working age, 25 to 54, share of the U.S. population fell from 42% to 35% during the baby boom, rose from that low to a peak of 44% by the late 90s, and has since drifted down to 39% due to population aging. What is the one trend, megatrend, that kind of keeps you up at night the most? That's a great question. Uh, um, 
I mean, I think one of the things that's interesting, I think we can it's sort of behind those those numbers you're talking about is that a lot of the things we think of as big trends that have to define the future, there are a lot of offsetting forces that can be occurring at the same time you might not be thinking about. And so the ultimate outcome is really tricky to, to determine in advance. I suppose, I guess the obvious one, you know, thing that I'd be worried about in terms of looking forward in the future is what's going on with the climate and the environment. That is something where, you know, I, I mean, I'm not going to pretend to be an expert in, in the science, but, you know, reading what some people are talking about and sort of the range of outcomes is that, you know, it, it could be some seriously dire scenarios in terms of what it means for the livability of the planet and the extent to which we would need to radically adjust our lifestyles. And the magnitude, I, I don't think that's inevitable. I think there are definitely things we can do to change that trajectory. Although even then, like, you know, the sort of optimistic case of you, you limit global warming to, you know, X number of degrees is still potentially going to lead to some severe longstanding changes in the, in the environment compared to the world we grew up in. But I think that's kind of the thing that I'm, I'm most worried about. I mean, population stuff is definitely interesting. It's definitely compelling. I think there's certain countries where it's going to be really radical. I mean, you look at the, the forecast, which who knows if that's going to play out, but the forecast change in the number of Chinese people age, you know, 20 to 64 going to fall by like half by the end of the century. I mean, that's an enormous social change. I don't think any society is experienced in, in peacetime. That's the kind of thing I think. I mean, I know they're worried about that. The, the Chinese government has made very clear they're concerned about that. Although, you know, that's not necessarily going to lead to, you know, a massive problem, depending on other things that can, there are, there are offsetting forces. I think to your question of like, what's the big trend to be worried about? I think it's, you know, the livability of the planet and you know, living living out where I do, I mean, it didn't used to be that you had massive fires leading to, you know, incredible amounts of polluting smoke for months on end. And, you know, just in the past few years, you've had that almost every fall. And that's, I don't think, a coincidence. I mean, that seems pretty clearly linked to changes in the environment and, and atmospheric concentrations of CO2 and other greenhouse gases. So, and then you've seen like the crazy flooding that we've seen in, in, in Europe and New York, even this summer. I mean, there, there are really terrible fires elsewhere. So I think these kinds of things, I mean, the concern is, all right, this is only the beginning. Uh, and so what that means for the changes that we'd have to make to prevent it from getting worse and or alternatively, what we could expect if we don't make those changes. I think those are both really things seriously to be thinking about. Full disclosure, stay with us. This show podcast to NPR One, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts at linkfulldradio.com. Please subscribe, rate us, and recommend the show to friends and family. We are on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, you name it, at handle Full D Radio. Coming up on October 12th at the University of Richmond's Robbins School of Business, Tom Barkin, Federal Reserve Bank of Richmond president on our air. I will interview him in person. There'll be limited seating, and you should also Catch it on a live stream wherever you are across the planet. You can register at the University of Richmond's website or catch it on my Twitter page at Full D Radio. October 12th, 6 p.m., Tom Barkin, Federal Reserve Bank of Richmond president on Full Disclosure. Join us. If you're just joining us, we're talking to Matthew Klein, founder of The Overshoot and co-author of the book Trade Wars Are Class Wars. Uh, the Overshoot, which Matthew launched uh, recently, bills itself as your guide to the global economy, financial markets, and public policy. Matthew, I do want to get into kind of the mechanics of, of, of going out on your own and 
subscription versus uh, working for a big organization and being salaried and, and whatnot. But before we get there, I always ask people on the economics beat, if you, if you will, maybe shed a tear or two for the saver. Because I wonder, I think back to the year 2000, and we're now in 2021, have a majority of those years involved the Federal Reserve at zero or near zero interest rate policy? I think the answer is yes. Now, I mean, I think about my parents. I think about people who are out there who did not heed the subprime call, the subprime siren call, who didn't overextend themselves, who didn't speculate in tech stocks or anything, just wanted to have their money in a CD or get a decent somewhat return above inflation. But there's been no comfort like that. There's only been comfort for people who own capital or people in this snapback since the spring of 2020 who've been in real estate or risk assets like equities or Bitcoin, commodities. There's something that, that just feels fundamentally unfair about that. Yeah, I agree. I mean, it's a, it's a, I mean, this is a very deep question, but it really gets at the, the challenges and limitations of what we think of as monetary policy. The idea that you can just raise and lower an interest rate that affects all sorts of different people and that that is the way to balance the economy. And it leads to these kind of perverse outcomes where you have sort of modest savers, maybe people are retirees or people who are just trying to have some emergency buffer in case they lose their job, you know, essentially being taxed to support other people who, you know, might be essentially speculating or taking a gamble on something. And, you know, you can stand back and abstract and say, oh, well, of course, interest rates should be low because, you know, this is what is the is necessary to balance the desire of those who want to save and the limited desire for people to borrow and invest in productive enterprises. And the only way you're going to get to, you know, the economy running the way it should be is to have low interest rates or negative interest rates. But the problem with that logic is it, you know, it combines everyone into this sort of single undifferentiated mass. And it doesn't distinguish between the fact that there are a lot of people who have very legitimate reasons to want to put some money away and not lose money. And then other people who maybe in fact, they should be prodded or pushed to spend their money on you know, productive enterprises or, or to consume goods and services. And, and I think that's the problem with having you know, the policy framework we have, just one interest rate. But that's, you know, I think, unfortunately, a very deep-seated problem that we don't really have a very good answer for. I mean, you'd have to have a much higher degree of coordination and concentration, cooperation, excuse me, between the Fed and, and, and the Treasury and the tax system. And I, I think you know, this is where I get... You know, you can go even further and say the reason why rates have been so low, or part of it, is precisely because you've been having this increase in inequality. That you know, some people are just have more money than they know what to do with, and so if they're not using that to buy goods and services that create jobs and, and give people income, sort of the normal thing you would expect is that the financial system responds in a way to basically punish them for that by pushing interest rates down, lowering their returns until they decide that it is worth spending money. Yeah, so it's really bad for everyone else who, you know, they just happen to be, you know, living in the same society and trying to save money. They're not the ones who should, you know, be prodded to spend or borrow more than they can afford. But that's the problem when you have one interest rate for everybody and using interest rates as your only policy tool. And I think that's really, I said, this is where you really need to have a greater degree of cooperation and coordination and thoughtful interaction between the people who do taxing and spending on the side of, you know, and central banks so that they all have to get on the same page. Because otherwise you have a situation, as you said, where people who are trying to do the right thing as individuals who are not 
particularly wealthy or anything of that nature are getting severely penalized and pushed into dangerous and unsustainable behaviors because other people are acting in a way that, that's ultimately harmful for the economy. And that's a real challenge. And explain this for me. Why does it feel just in the, in, in the, maybe since the financial crisis, especially that on the occasion that I walk into a bank and want to deposit cash, it, it, it feels like they think they're doing me a favor by taking my cash. It feels like, you know, it's pushing on a string. They really don't want my free cash. Am I wrong in this? Are no, some, you're not. some of the vagaries this... of the yield curve or something, they should be elated that I'm depositing cash that if I if I remember how banking works, they're allowed to a certain ratio to go out and expand their balance sheets and loan that money out and create money out of me kind of putting in there and, and demanding nothing for my cost of capital. Yeah, so it's it's right. I mean, in theory, you know, having you put in money is basically free money for them because in general people you know, who do that, if you're an individual person putting money in a bank, you basically never take it out and they don't pay you anything. So that's effectively free money uh, from their perspective. There are a couple of things that point out, I mean, we could get into some really technical details of post-2008 financial regulation, which I'm guessing you don't want to get into those nitty gritty here, but it is a kind of an interesting fact and, and it reflects the point we were making before about why interest rates are low, which is that actually, you know, you don't want to have more cash because there isn't, there aren't places to put it. And if you're stuck with it, then then you have to, you know, the, the act of trying to find a place to put it is itself more of a burden, you know, and that's sort of a perverse world to be in, incidentally. I mean, it's essentially saying that there's, it's not saying that you have too much cash, but that there's, as a whole, that there is too much cash and not enough desire or a good place to put it. And I think there's, this is where it kind of gets in a, I'm not going to say it's meta, but there's, there's a, the extent to which there is too much cash is partly a function of the fact that people think there is you know, just want to save cash, right? If everyone decided that they had really good ideas for spending money, you know, whether or not those were good ideas, the immediate effect of that would be a surge in spending. Suddenly that cash would become a lot more valuable um, mm. to people who weren't spending it. And then, you know, the whole dynamic would change. You know, maybe years later, we'd find that we you know, wasted a lot of money on products that weren't valuable. But, you know, for a while anyway, you'd have this sort of immediate reaction and, you know, but it goes both ways. If people think nothing is worth doing, then nothing is worth doing, right? A factory that can produce a lot of cars is only valuable if people want to buy cars. And people aren't going to want to buy cars they don't have money. But if people have money because there are people building factories for lots of other things, then a factory to, buy, to build cars becomes valuable. So whether it's worthwhile or not, is, it's contingent on what other people are doing. And it's, you know, different states of the world can, you know, can change quite quickly depending on your expectations and what you're thinking about how, how all the different pieces of the economy are fitting together. And so that it can turn very quickly on a dime. I mean, you know, what we were talking about earlier with autos is very interesting because you basically had a situation where the automakers were convinced we were in one state of the world where demand was not coming back and consumers were in a very different, you know, opinion. And what's interesting is that, you know, you had that gap persist for as long as it did before, you know, it basically consumption has been forced down because there haven't been enough cars produced. That's a very unusual outcome. I mean, usually what happens is that you know, those things tend to track together that the, the manufacturer is actually a pretty good sense of what it is people want and how much of it. And they don't refuse to make enough or sometimes they make too much. But I mean, you know, again, that's I mean, that's what drives business cycles. These kinds of mismatches between what, you know, one set of people are expecting and what turns out to be a reasonable expectation based on what other people are expecting. Matthew, uh, talk to me about China. How has this country been just so indefatigable over the past 20 years since it was allowed entry into the World Trade Organization? I don't believe it has had a true hard landing or a true economic crash. Even after 2008, 
it threw all sorts of concrete and asphalt and high-speed rail and government spending. And now you're reading about these ghost cities and these condo towers. Can it just defy economic physics for this long? So I think the answer is no, uh, it can't defy it. But I think China's a really interesting case study of, of you know, how to think about economic management and sort of the pros and cons of, I think, what's a very different approach from how we do things in you know, the US or, or in Europe. I mean, in many ways, China is the country that's most taken, you know, sort of traditional Keynesian policy recommendations to heart. I mean, it's not perfect. I'm sure if you take people who are, you know, true scholars of, of what Keynes wrote, they would have various disagreements with me on, on this point. But I think in general... Well, explain explain that, that you can print money and just build demand and the echo chamber... Yeah. It's basically that if there are people who are willing to work and you have factories that are able to make stuff, then you don't need to have downturns, that you can always come up with something to get people employed and keep businesses humming. And, and that's so. And you, you made that point perfectly with 2008. So if you look at China, sort of 2001, up until the financial crisis, you see a situation where the growth of Chinese production, particularly manufacturing production, radically exceeds the growth of the Chinese domestic economy. I mean, Chinese domestic economy is growing very rapidly during this period, but the stuff that's being produced in China is growing even faster. And that, that gap is showing up in a very, very large trade surplus up until the financial crisis. And that trade surplus is going a couple places, but in particular, it's in the United States. But then you have 2008, and suddenly you have the major export market for China, and not just the US, also Europe, you see this as well. China's major export markets collapse. And not only did they fall, does demand fall very abruptly, but it, it, the growth trajectory just stays down. And I think a lot of that, to be honest, is, reflects policy failures in the US and Europe. And, and that's, a, that's a whole other story. But from the Chinese perspective, it's, okay, what are you going to do about that? You know, regardless of what's going on in these other countries, you still want to keep your people employed, you want to keep your businesses operating and so forth. And so they have a very, a very dramatic response. And it's a response that I think, in retrospect, some of Chinese China's leaders think may have been a mistake or they overdid it. But nevertheless, at the time, it worked relatively well, which is, as you said, you just go on this massive infrastructure push and say, okay, well, China's a poor country. There are a lot of things we wish we had. Let's just do it all right now. We're going to have a ton of money. You know, We're going to lend to businesses and local governments. They're going to just build like crazy. They're going to build high-speed rail, some of which is going to be very obviously useful. I mean, the Beijing, the Shanghai route is obviously going to be very profitable. These are two of the biggest cities in the world. Clearly, that's going to be profitable. But you can also build high-speed rail to places where nobody lives. So that's, right. that's less obvious. So, <laughs> you, know, uh, you know, you know, you can build a lot of housing, right? Like, okay, like the housing stock before was quite poor. Like, sure, there's an argument for building more housing. But then you build, you know, ghost cities in, you know, the middle of nowhere. Um, so, again, it's a question of, you know, putting it in perspective how much is, is the right amount. And, but, but nevertheless, you think of sort of these crude quantities of, well, they spent a lot of money and they kept their economy growing and it seemed to work out okay. But that did come at one important cost, which is that the level of debt in the Chinese economy, not debt owed by the central government, which has always been very low, but total debt. So whether it's state-owned enterprises or sort of quasi-public, quasi-private companies or local governments, whatever, the total amount of debt just shot up relative to GDP. And it's basically the biggest, fastest increase in indebtedness ever. Or, or among the biggest ever, certainly among large, diversified economies, <laughs> in like the history of the world. And the Chinese leadership seems to recognize this was a bad idea. I mean, they were saying this was a problem before the financial crisis, that the, the Chinese economy was unbalanced and unsustainable and uncoordinated. And you, know, you get to like 2012, 2013, and they said this is really a problem. 
and you see some really significant changes and you see debt growth falling very dramatically. And that plays out in things like the price of iron ore and coal and stuff like that. And there has been a bit of a shift. There hasn't been a complete, I would, what I would say, sort of rebalancing of the Chinese economy. We can talk a lot about, you know, what exactly has been going on in China and sort of the, the dynamics there. But I mean, I think one thing we've seen is that they have been sort of stuck in this paradigm of either we basically build out, you know, real estate infrastructure that people may or may not need, or we have, you know, unemployment go up and growth slow. And there's sort of a tension there because there is, in theory, a way out for them, which is if you redistribute income and purchasing power from politically connected businesses and the government towards ordinary workers and consumers, that could really lead to sort of a sustainable uptick in growth in China and help with a lot of the problems that, mm. um, you know, they've been, they've been having. But, you know, if you don't do that, you're then stuck in the dynamic that they're in, which is they can rely on foreign demand, which has actually been very helpful during the pandemic, um, because basically it turns out everyone in the world, you know, if you have a situation where everyone is staying at home and buying physical goods, that's great for Chinese manufacturers, even if, you know, no one's going to tourism. You know, it's a striking thing that even though the Chinese economy grew in 2020, one of the few major economies to have grown during the pandemic year, like 2% or whatever, household spending in China fell. What is actually the exact opposite of what you saw in, say, the United States, where the, the total U.S. economy shrank, but consumer spending rose, and that you know, which is a pretty striking disconnect. And, and the reason basically is that Chinese businesses managed to do very well selling to Americans, essentially, um, even as Chinese workers and consumers got hosed by the fact that they don't have any kind of social safety net. Right. And so, you know, they they could have had different policy choices there, but I mean, I think that's sort of, you know, are you going to be reliant on the U.S. and Europe forever to, you know? keep people employed and, and not, you know, focusing on it, or you're going to, you know, focus on building a lot of you know, residential or, or, you know, real estate projects or infrastructure that you may not need. I mean, that doesn't seem like it's going to be a sustainable model. You see that in the rise in debt. And I think that there's a real challenge. I don't think it's going to lead to sort of a financial crisis and the kind of thing we've seen like Argentina. But. You stole the transition from me. Matthew, talking about sustainable model in the nine minutes or so we have left, Matthew Klein, founder of The Overshoot, previously with Barron's, The Financial Times, Bloomberg Opinion, and The Economist. Talk to me about this vision quest of The Overshoot and leaving a huge organization like Barron's, owned by Mother Dow and News Corp, to start this on your own. The siren call of subscriptions, what's involved in this how uh, when you when you had the thought to do it and and how it's going so far? Oh man, that's a big question. So you know, obviously, I I saw other people going independent, and some people did very well for that. And obviously, you know, you see that, and you you know, you have to get somewhat intrigued and wondering if you can do that yourself. But you know, that in and of itself wasn't the thing that pushed me to do it because you you can see that and you can wonder. But then you know, I'm I'm a relatively cautious person in some ways, so I wouldn't necessarily want to go out and you know give up what was a very, very good position I had before. I mean, I'm not, you know, I, I, I have no complaints whatsoever about where I was. Um, and, you know, they're, they're very good to me and I, and I liked it. So, you know, to make that kind of shift, you really had to be have a sort of compelling reason. And uh, it was kind of funny because I, I, sometimes I would get messages from people saying, you know, I, I love reading your stuff, but I don't know if I necessarily want to have to pay for the full Barron's package. I mean, obviously there's a lot of good stuff in Barron's, but it's not necessarily for everyone. And in some ways, the, the stuff I was writing didn't necessarily fit in with the rest of the magazine. I mean, some people right. obviously found it was common interest, but you know, some people didn't. So then that leads to an interesting question of, well, could there be value for me to, you know, unbundle that? And, you know, I basically just talked to some people and 
came to the conclusion that it would be it's certainly worth trying. And uh, even as I said, I, I know no complaints with Barons whatsoever, but you know, it's certainly compelling. And, you know, the, as a, as a good uh, fan of, of market systems and capitalism and, you know, getting people to be allocated their most productive uses thinking maybe, well, maybe, the, maybe there's a way I can, you know, capture a, better, a bigger share of whatever surplus is, is going, is being generated by my work if I'm, if I'm independent. And so, you know, it happens to be the case that there are some really good platforms out there now that allow people like me to, to try that. And, um, but here, here's the thing, Matthew. Matthew, doesn't it run up? Doesn't it run up against the user's subscription fatigue? And I don't mean to be mercenary and reductionist about it, but look at whatever everything else that's happened with the unbundling. So yes, if I don't have a cable package, I now have pay for Wi-Fi and I pay for Netflix and I pay for maybe Hulu and Spotify and the others. Everybody is coming back to me and going so a la carte that by the time I add it all up, I mean you were part of. Effectively, you were part of a mutual fund before as as a broader masthead at Barron's or the FT and others, and they were doing the curation for me. And now all these great writers are going off and asking me to spend, you know, anywhere from five to twenty dollars a month just to get their IP. That's true. I mean, there's a joke. I don't know who made this joke, but it's a, you know, there are two ways of making money in media, which is bundling and unbundling. Uh, so yeah, I mean. <laughs> You know, every it seems like a good idea until you know everyone does it, and as you said, your your total cost somehow is more than it was before. Yeah, I, I guess it's. I guess I would say two things. One is that if people can pick a la carte, they might not choose to recreate the bundles they had before. So there's that extra flexibility there. Mm. You know, some people might they might be you know disadvantaged by this shift, but many other people might not. And then the other thing, which is you know harder for me to judge one way or the other, but I mean, at least in my case, and this is harder for me to say for people in general, but like if if you're if you are providing a service that is essentially a business expense, then that gets treated differently than if you're marketing to a consumer who's concerned about, you know, I'm paying for Netflix and for Hulu and for Disney Plus or whatever. And so, you know, striking that balance is tricky. I mean, one of the things I wondered the most about was what's the right price to set? And, you know, what is the right way to think about, you know, the break even that I need for thinking this is worth making the switch in the first place? And, you know, to be honest, I don't. You know, we can get back together in a year, and we, you know, have a better sense of whether this. Made, you know, if I'm still doing this, we'll have a better sense of whether it was I made the right right decisions on this. But it's no, a, but I, I, you know, this question. is a detour. This is a detour that a lot of other journalists wouldn't want to go into. But I want to know. I mean, this is the creative creator economy, after all, and the great unbundling. Did you have to be a lot more mindful about healthcare costs, about uh, garnishing, you know, your subscription income for for other things that you need to put aside for the IRS? I mean. Kind of what goes what goes into doing this because it's a it's 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 a huge leap of faith. There is still a safety and security to be had as a part of a broader masthead herd. Yeah, that's one hundred percent correct. I mean, I'm fortunate that uh, you know my wife has a good job, and I'm I was on her health plan before actually. So I mean that that's definitely gave me a degree of flexibility that other people might not necessarily have had. So that's certainly you know very helpful, and I'm I'm grateful for that. Yeah, I mean the personal accounting stuff is definitely something I've not dealt with before. It's much easier to do your taxes when you're just having a W two and that's it. Uh, on the other hand, you have more flexibility with other things too, right? I mean, not that this is the reason why I left, but you know, after my book Trade Wars or Class Wars came out and did well, I mean, it got you know it was listed as one of the best books of the year by the Financial Times and won the Lionel Gelber Prize and stuff. And people were approaching me about doing speaking paid speaking engagements and didn't end up having a chance to do that because of the pandemic, at least not yet. But you know. Barron's has very strict rules. I think they're good rules. 
but there are strict rules that you know journalists and Dow Jones, or Dow Jones as a whole that you know you are not allowed to do paid speaking engagements because there's concern about conflict of interest. It makes total sense. But you know if you're not you know in that particular employment environment, then you know that you know potentially can change your your thinking about whether it makes sense. And you know I mean you know John Carew who wrote um, you know that great book about you know about Theranos. Uh, I mean Theranos. That something that affected. That's right. I mean, affected his, uh, you know, thinking as well. I mean, it's sort of, you know, there are many benefits to being a large organization, but there are sometimes certain costs for certain people. And that's like a challenge you have to, you know, it's always different for different people, what makes sense. Um, but that's, you know, I mean, they're trade, I guess, you know, they're trade-offs with everything, right? It's sort of the <laughs> simple. Matthew Klein, close this out. What's ahead? What's your subscription count so far? How's it going? Uh, it's it's going pretty well. I mean, I mean, we have uh, about fifty one hundred people on the on the free list, and uh, you know about ten percent of that on the, on the paid list. We have a fair amount of people on the or if you, several companies, you know, in, investment firms that are on the institutional plan, which is basically a higher payment tier. So, I mean, it, you know, it's a work in progress, but uh, you know, it's it's moving in the right direction. I mean, quite frankly, it's not yet at the point where it's this is a sustainable business, but it's moving in the right direction where I'm, I'm, I feel feel good about where things are going to be, you know, six, 12 months. Well, for my part, this is, this is the last stand for me in journalism. If this doesn't work out and, you know, it's been a good 21, 22 year grind, I'm, I'm just going to open up my Persian food truck and uh, <laughs> maybe do this as a hobby. But I, I'm certainly a fan of yours, Matthew Klein, and you've done quite a job over the past 10, 12 years of, of taking writing and analysis and going from big organizations and everything. And finally, striking out on your own and, and creating value. The uh, subscription newsletter is called The Overshoot. Matthew Klein, founder, co-author of Trade Wars, Our Class Wars. As I like to say, you are always welcome on this show, sir. Thank you very much, Robin. Really appreciate it. Full disclosure, special thanks to Claire Morgan at Notterly, this show podcast to NPR One, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts at link fulldradio.com. Talk about subscriptions. Why don't you subscribe to my podcast? We are also on WPVM in Asheville, North Carolina. We're on KPPQ in Ventura, California, WERA 96.7 FM in Northern Virginia and Washington, D.C. And holler if you too would like me on your air. Uh, One last shout out for Tom Barkin, president of the Federal Reserve Bank of Richmond at the University of Richmond's Robin School of Business on Full Disclosure Live, October 12th. 2021, you could check out Full D Radio on Twitter for ticket information. We'll also be live streaming. I'm Robin Farzad. Thank you for listening. Back with you next week. Mm-hmm.